listeners, we are excited to share a bonus episode on our Unspoken Words podcast feed this week. This is a completely different format than other episodes we've shared so far. During Communicamp, we hold a live question answer panel with clients and parents who answer questions and share their journey in overcoming selective mutism. If you're subscribed to our More Than Mutism newsletter, follow our social media, or have listened to past podcast episodes, you may recognize some of the panelists. The live question answer panel called Hear Us Speak Out is one of the most popular sessions at Communicamp. It offers our attendees much needed support and hope to embark and continue their journey in overcoming selective mutism. At a recent Communicamp, we recorded the panel speaking out as they shared their experience and answered questions. So without further ado, here's the live panel recording. Enjoy. So Nicholas, you wanna give a brief intro? Sure, can you hear me okay? They hear you. Okay, so my name is Nicholas, but a lot of my friends call me Nikki or Nick. Um, I was diagnosed with selective mutism when I was about two or three, and I've kind of lived with it since then. But I used to try several different types of therapies to try to overcome selective mutism when I was a lot younger, but none of them could really work for me. Um, And then about a year, year and a half ago, I started really focusing on trying to overcome it a lot harder. I became more determined and more driven to kind of beat SM. So I, I went to Communicamp exactly one year ago to the October session and I I was just kind of blown away by the camp. Um, after the camp, I started working with a local um, select mutism, like focused therapist. Her focus is specifically on treating SM, which is something that I never come into contact with before. And since I've been working with her, I've taken so many strides to overcoming SM. And today I am totally comfortable talking to strangers and just people in everyday uh, situations. When I go out to a restaurant or go out to the movies or to get my hair cut or a doctor, I can talk to all those people. Um, I'm still working on speaking with some people who I'm closer with, like my closer friends, but I think that I have overcome much of my selective mutism and I'm very grateful for all the people who have helped me along my journey. <laughs> that makes me feel so happy. Glenda? Um, my name is Glenda um, and I am the very grateful mother of a 20-year-old young man who is out in the world, literally, he is at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. On, I know, he's over there on um, his semester abroad. He's based at Amherst College, but he's on um, his semester abroad. And he's managed all of that. 
he has, he has managed his entire application process to all of the schools that he's gone to, and he's having a wonderful time at Edinburgh. I spoke to him on Friday, and he's just loving what he's doing. He got there literally uh, two hours before the Queen died and was a part of that entire process. He got to see um, what was going on. He was a part of the the ceremony crowd and all of that. And he's he's just loving his life. He's enjoying himself. He had a um, internship, one of 15 internships at Harvard Medical School over the summer. And he is fully integrated in becoming, becoming this beautiful young man. And he has moved very successfully through his selective mutism. He still has some, what I'm gonna loosely refer to as low grade um, anxiety socially, but he's come to terms with the fact that he knows how to manage when he has reached his capacity and when he's ready to integrate socially. And he's learned to manage how to toggle back and forth between that. Um, and I am very grateful for this entire process that he's learned through your organization, Dr. E. So he was a teen when he came to us. So he came yes. for a two day intensive there from Florida. They flew in and he um, was what, 17, right? He was 17, yeah. Yeah, so again, a teen, teen can overcome this. And he was very motivated, I have to say. Like he wanted to help also. Um, but even if he hadn't, we would have worked with him. So we're sharing these stories and they're sharing these stories because they want to offer you hope and they want to offer you belief that your kids will overcome this. Here's Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, I'm a former shorter term patient of Dr. E's. Um, I think I went to see her when I was like seven, but I had selective mutism since I could talk pretty much. Um, so my family came to see her when I was in second grade, and then I would say I had completely overcome selective mutism by about the fifth grade. Um, and now I'm an intern at the Smart Center. I am on the podcast sometimes, so. If you recognize my voice, that's why. Um, and I'm a community camp counselor, and I love it. Um, hi, I'm Sophie, and I wrote down what I'm gonna say. Uh, I've been a panelist with the Smart Center since like early March, I think, and I've been a client of Jen's since I was 11. Uh, when I first came to the center, I went through like what, um, Glenda? Uh, Glenda's son went through the two-day intensive, I think. Um, and I was re-diagnosed with SM and several other things. And then um, I went into treatment with Jen. And since I've met with her, I've went through two psychiatrists, Dr. E being one of them. And... Um, I no longer need to like desperately dig through different therapists because Jen is excellent. <laughs> Thanks. I second that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. 
Um, good morning. My name is Rachel, and um, my daughter Layla is a um, counselor in the little group. <laughs> I think the orange. Are they orange? Um, and she is 17 years old. She's a senior in high school. Um, she was diagnosed with selective mutism just over two years ago. She attended community camp with Sophie about just about a year ago, maybe in August. Like the two group. years ago. Was it two years ago? Right. So. <laughs> um, and. Um, yeah, I think as a child, like why I come speak here um, is, you know, we always knew, I think, you know, what some other people were saying, uh, there was something, and it was more than just being shy, and it was, it didn't require, like, I knew that, like, making her get a lot of, like, make them do it. I knew that was not right. Um, there were a lot of therapists and, and people that I just knew weren't working. And um, so, I, you know, when I first heard the term selective mutism, I was like, that, that's it, that was it. And um, so this process, um, you know, coming here and learning how to do this is just like so m wonderful. And I, again, just that idea of hope, um, and especially for the older kids, because I know when I was here, you know, I, I know in my mind, I was like, well, these little kids, well, like, of course, like they have so much time and it's gonna be great and it's easier. Um, and it's the same process, just done really, just a little differently when they're older. And so, um, but it, it works, and it's and I'm happy to answer any questions here or after. And um, Layla it was going to um, go talk to the teens after, and she'd be happy to talk to any parents too on a more one-on-one. -on -one. She is doing awesome. Um, I heard I think I love the morning session and hear things. You know, you definitely there's so many things that resonate. Um, you know, they get to spy. You just have to kind of move to the next one. It's definitely a process, but it's it's worth the the work that everyone says they put in. It is work. So. Now you have an introduction, and Nicholas, mom, you're welcome to share too and answer questions sometimes. Are you guys able to hear us okay? Okay, good, oh, perfect. Um, so does anybody have any questions that they'd like to ask anyone or the panel, anyone in particular? Any questions? Yeah, we have a question. So the question is, um, because you basically overcame it pretty quickly, were there any key things that you did that really helped kind of move you quicker? Like strategies you used, or was there key strategies or things in your life that maybe made things a little bit easier? So for me, what has really, really been beneficial in my own journey with selective mutism has been finding the right balance of medication and a specific type of therapy where it's kind of an exposure therapy of gradually working up to exposing myself to more situations where I might not have been comfortable in before, but that I can push myself in to kind of expand my comfort zone. Um, so roughly a year ago, um, my family kind of made the decision to um, get some medication for me to reduce my general anxiety. Um, and we kind of worked our way up to finding the right dosage of the medication. And along with taking that medication, I've continued to work with my therapist who I started working with right after community camp last year. Um, and she's been amazing working with me and we've kind of figured out that right balance of the medication and the therapy. 
So I think that's important. We never want to rely on medication alone. We need to be doing therapy. So that's for sure um, something important. If, this, if medication is a decision to use, it, it adjuncts itself. The medication is an adjunct. I think that's a great question. Um, does anybody want to share? Rachel, you want to share? And then maybe Glenn. Um, so I was just talking to Jen a little bit, because Layla, um, like in the year, like when we were here for Communicamp, she didn't, she didn't order in, in restaurants. You know, she's six, 15 years old or something. She wasn't ordering in restaurants. Um, and so we did, um, they do, did 100 exposures in 10 days. That was a lot. Um, but, you know, we did that. So it's really the practice. So I know they were talking earlier. Like, I remember we started in a bookstore, and um, we would go in, and she'd have the book on her phone, and I'd go up to the person and say, you know, she'd, can you help us with something? She said, sure, what can I do? And then, Layla, what book are we looking for? Uh, you know, and she'd start showing to them. And I think by the third time we went in, she was like, I'll just go ask, you know? like. Um, um, and so she's gotten really great. Even um, Jen just did a, a school um, training with Layla's teachers in high school, and um, and she's great with the small groups now. And she's great with you know like going to stores and she'll go get her nails done and she'll order at restaurants and things like that. She is funny. Teens are funny. Like if we go to Target and I'm like, let's go ask for something. She's like, no, I'm just gonna walk around until I find it. I can go my whole life with never asking somebody where this is. But so you have to like work with them on like I know, but we're practicing it. Um, so, um, but she's not, you know, she's comfortable there. And then, so we were just kind of talking, but now we need to push her to the next level. She's not comfortable answering in front of the whole class and school and stuff. Um, and it would be easy kind of just to sit where we're at. Um, so pushing, you know, we have to just kind of push through it um, and, and move to that, that next level and, and know that it's necessary. But, and they do like, you know, they do push back. I, I heard Dr. E saying, for sure, like, once you've expected them to talk in that that setting, they're like, well, I'm like teens especially, or I guess probably all kids, they start to avoid it. And Layla was the master of avoiding it. She would just not go then. Um, you know, last year she had 40 missed days of school, and it was strictly like, I'm gonna, I have to, I know she, they might ask me this in class, so I'm just gonna not go. So, um, yeah, it's just a work process. Okay, anybody, yes? So the question is, um, do you experience increased anxiety when you are making progress? Kind of like the fear of like, what do I do now? And it was easier to stay the same because I've been that way for so many years. And is there regression? And is regression? I'm trying not to answer, you know yeah. that, right? Okay, because <laughs> I have a lot to say to that, all right. <laughs> um, anybody want to answer that? Glenda, Nicholas, Alex, Sophie, Rachel? I think I've, once I started making progress, I would get scared, like, oh gosh, I'm doing so good. Um, <laughs> and I would kind of want to like regress and be like, I don't want to do so good because then I'm going to overcome SM quicker. But I do so good that I can't really stop progress and it just doesn't work when I try and like go backwards. I think, I think a, just a brief aspect to that is there's very few things in life that we can do to really be achieving something that we don't have support from others. And I think along the way, some people want to just take it on their own and think, all right, my child's been 
in therapy or my child's been at camp and they're gonna be good. It's not, it's constant work through this because you're right, there's gonna be new situations, there's gonna be altered situations, um, dealing with people that knew them as mute for so many years, there's so many things and having that help and you know, coaching along the way. I always say I'm Coach Dr. E. You know, we begin a lot of sessions of what's going really well. Let's go over the things going well and what's not going so well. And then what are the things that are not going well? What can we do And the things that are going well? Why are they going well? And I think that if you approach it that way and you tackle it like that along the way, you're gonna have days that you're tired or you're, you know, overwhelmed, something else in your life, and it's going to affect your ability to can make continued steps. But no success is straight up it's always gonna have dips down, like three steps forward, a step back, five steps forward, two steps back, and maybe one day you just are flat, but then you just keep going. Would you guys agree that that sounds right? Can I, I think one thing is yes. um, too, is like to really, sorry, trust yourself. Um, I know Alex's parents are here often, and, and really that like, I think the idea of, and trust your kids, and I heard Dr. E saying in the morning session again, it's like this fine dance you have to learn as a parent. Like, when are they just trying to avoid it? When should I push them? And that feelings really, really helps with that, to say like, well, how does that feel? And so if they're like a, you know, it's, it's okay, and then you kind of know you can push them a little. If they're like, heck no, then you just, you know, you gotta move on from that. Um, and I just think the other thing like, you know, we talk about is, um, the pressure from outside. So I always try to stop and ask myself, like, do I care about this, or is this important for Layla, um, or is this a pressure that's coming from somebody else and somebody outside? So it's the rest of the world saying that your kid should be doing this, and why isn't your kid doing that, or your mother, or your aunt, or the uncle, or whoever it might be, that's saying this is what it's supposed to be, and this is what it's supposed to look like. And just, you have to get rid of those. Brenda, did you wanna say something? I'm happy to. I, I believe, um, Dr. E, that early in David's therapy with you, you were very perceptive around his personality trait as, lead, as a leader. And you recommended to him that he organize things where he would have leadership. And that has been a very significant tool that has helped him throughout his uh, bridge, if you will, from selective mutism into this sort of low-grade uh, social anxiety. So he organizes clubs around things that he's passionate about. He invites people in, and they get together, and he's sort of slowly but surely building a social network that is in a way that is comfortable for him. So yeah, David, very much about wanting to do things. He was in circus, something called circus, and he loved to juggle and things like that, and he wanted to meet kids. He knew that it was hard, so we organized him. Do you remember this? Doing a juggling club. Yes. Uh-huh, and so yes. he started out with writing and sending out messages to the younger kids at first, and then we brought in the high schoolers. But, and then, yeah, so that was a very key aspect of that big shot leadership role, and that's why yesterday I said and shared with all of you, what are your kids good at, but what do they like? So a combo of like and good at are very important. And something you approve of <laughs> as parents. <laughs> that has to be emphasized. Um, Nicholas, um, you know, is there anything you can share that as you've made progress, maybe you got nervous and made you step back and what you did to kind of continue on? Yeah, so definitely towards the start of 
you know, when I tried to push myself in some of those situations, like going to stores or going in restaurants and approaching people to ask them questions or talk to them, I definitely felt that anxiety there. And I think to an extent, it's still present in some of those situations. But over time, that anxiety, it kind of decreases once you put yourself in those situations. So as I have continued to kind of seek out those opportunities where I can speak to people, I've found that my overall anxiety levels, they've kind of just dwindled down, maybe not in a straight line, but kind of just like gradually decreased. And I can, I've learned to kind of handle the anxiety in those situations with more and more practice. I think you're bringing up a great point, Nicholas. One of the very important things that you all know, Sophie, Rachel, um, Alex, and you, you know, I know David knows, is that rating their feelings, the zero to five for older kids and zero to three for little kids and relating to the words they use of how they feel and trusting them because they need that trust. A really key aspect of treatment is trusting how they feel. Even if you're like, I don't get this, why are they scared of something like that? They are, they're, not, they're telling you. Um, they're letting you know and building that trust is so, so important and using the feelings when we're doing goals, that cognitive approach of the CBT aspect of what is it gonna feel like? Let's plan our goals together and what does it feel like to do this goal? Like, what do you think it's gonna feel like? And you, so you rate your feelings before, and then after you do it, what would it be if you had to do it again? And what you're doing, and what Nicholas is saying is, I realize that things either get easier or they stay the same. And trusting the clinician you're working with to guide you through that. It's not just pick a random goal. Like I said to you yesterday, the goal of a child that's not engaging, not communicating at all, relying on others to go up to a store clerk, unprepared, no, you know, no warning, not interested in it, and just saying, go ask that, and you're going to get, like, you know, tokens or stickers or $150,000. It's not going to work, and it's going to make them feel like a failure. So we have to know where are they and really trust the people you work with to help guide you. And I think that's one of the things, Nicholas, you're saying is you're never, anything you try to do is never going to be easy. I mean, you're always going to have to be a little bit uncomfortable to get comfortable. Yes. So, so the question is, for those that have siblings, how are, you, or how are you managing that dynamic? Basically, that's your overall question, right? So the individual with SM, how did you navigate with your sibling? Like, how did it work with your sibling? But then for parents, how did you manage that dynamic so that progress could still be made and the children are still getting the necessary attention and the other one's not feeling left out and things like that? Did I sum it up pretty well? All right, well, Siri, so Siri just kind of said it the way it is. Siri, listen, let me tell you something, guys. If Siri doesn't get it, you know this is not an easy process, right? Because <laughs> Siri always has an answer. <laughs> oh, my gosh, we're out beating Google here. <laughs> okay. Anybody want to um, share that? Share moms here? Go ahead. Um, Alex, go yeah. ahead. I... I'm the oldest of five, so my parents definitely dealt with that a lot. Um, and when I was dealing with my selective mutism, I definitely needed a lot more attention than some of my younger siblings. Um, 
And my parents always say, like, you can't, you can't treat every sibling the same. Some days, some days um, someone's going to need more attention than others. And for a few years, I know, like, especially behind the scenes, they were probably working extra hard for me than they may have been for the others. Um, but I can definitely tell you as my life went on, especially being the oldest, the others, they were good with attention. They had their own things and my parents, um, you know, were able to work with them just as well. And I think I was lucky too that my dad was a stay-at-home dad. So we had one parent um, who got to be home with all of us and even he will say that Sometimes one of us gets a little more attention than the other. Um, my parents like to use the analogy that sometimes when we would all go shopping as a family, one of us would see a shirt we like and we could get it. Having five kids, not everybody gets a shirt that day. So, um, but the next time we go, someone else will. So I think it really balances out. Um, and the sibling dynamic, my siblings, were great for accepting me as I was, and they would speak for me a lot. My two-year-old sister would order for me um, at restaurants, and you know, if they ever wanted to make fun of me as siblings do, like, oh, you don't talk, well, I could be like, okay, you failed your spelling test yesterday. So, um, so it really does balance out, I think, naturally, um, and it can definitely be hard. But even like, especially for me, it was a long process. So there might be, you know a year where one sibling might just be getting a little more attention. Um, but it tends to balance itself out. Did you want to say something, Rachel? Um, yeah, Layla is a middle child, so she has an older sister and a younger brother. And um, I would, you know, I, again, I think we came into this process so much later, so there's so many things I would, I would, I wish I had done differently, for sure. I think her older sister has a lot of, like, mm, I would go with anger about it and, um, you know, some resentment about how much, you know, her, and more of that was that we, we weren't, like, we didn't have these skills and so we weren't doing a great job then, you know, we were just trying to, like, get through the day, the day and stuff, so, um, but, yeah, I totally agree. I think, like you do with anything, you know, you have to, you know, talk about it um, and, you know, just kind of, you know, and, and also, I think you make a point to do things with the other kids, too, so, um, you know, just make that extra effort, like, um, you know, to have special things with all the kids that you're going to take time with and stuff like that. Um, and the same, I mean, the kids, I think siblings are hysterical together, right? So, like, my son will do the same thing. I'll be like, you don't even have any friends, you know, like, just <laughs> whatever. It's vicious. But, um, but I think, you know, like with anything, right, how great these kids are going to be so much more empathetic towards people. It's just an awesome thing. So just, like, embrace that and, and um and I think talk about it. I think you just have to talk about it. We've used a lot of younger children or even older children to do this together. So for families that have that kind of biological genetic com component and the social anxiety, the timidity is there, it's like a two for one. They can work on it together. You can also have an older sibling um, help out their younger sibling with SM or the younger sibling or the older child with SM give them a role So they're helping like it's really about including the other siblings in this journey as well And sometimes like I'll often have multiple siblings in at a session to be able to give them a role And you start to see them perk up and I've had it happens more with the little girls or the the older sisters where they just feel like they're like mother hen and they're taking control and even on consults, if it's a web, they'll get on and you see them 
them first, making sure everything's okay, because that's the role they have. They're helping out, and they like that role a lot of times, so they're helping their younger sibling. But if it's role reversed, you know, that can be harder, but it's really having, you know, the conversation and emphasizing their strengths. I can't go back to the big shot roles that these kids need. There's really emphasize their strengths. Um, I give this um, one example, and I'm just going to say it really um, quickly, is that um, we often look at our kids of all that they're not doing, and what I hope that you're getting from this weekend and from this panel is, let's look at all the things they are doing and really nurture the gifts instead of focusing so much on what they're not doing, because our kids have so many gifts and so much to offer. Yeah, another question, yes. So Nicholas, the question is, her son is 16, it's the first time he's you know, in this type of program and he really doesn't want help or therapy, right? They've tried, they've tried many different ways, many different therapists, different ways, and he's pretty resistant. So the basic question is like, what was it that made you want to continue to get therapy even after you made the leaps at camp? Because I watched you, I saw it, remember? <laughs> so I was exactly in that position last year because I was 16 going to community camp for the first time. It was the first time I'd ever been to really anything like it. Um, and a major motivating factor for me kind of heading into community camp and since has been like the factor of college and the rest of my life starting pretty soon. Um, I'm a senior in high school, so it's not that far away that I'm gonna be on my own out in college and soon enough in the real world. Um, so I think a huge motivating factor for me was to try to overcome selective mutism in order to be able to participate in some of the, the key aspects of my life and not rely on help from really other people to step in and talk for me or um, write out or type out what I want to say in a bunch of social situations. So I also um, think that coming to camp and hopefully making progress here is also a motivator. And I know you made a lot of progress at camp. And I remember talking to you, and you were a rock star and all, <laughs> um, and the progress you made. So I think that was also motivating for a lot of kids. Like Sophie came to camp, and hopefully your kids are making progress, and they start to see that they're not alone, too. You know, they're not alone, that social identity piece. Was that helpful to you guys, like Alex, Sophie, um, Nicholas, that, that connection to others? Can I just say one thing about Yeah. <laughs> so therapy, I'll go. <laughs> um, it takes time to find a good therapist. So we have been through many, many therapists, and a lot of it is, like Nicholas said, he found a therapist that specializes in selective mutism. The number of therapists that Layla went to that she just did, like they would just ask, like, want her to talk, <laughs> you know? So just keep trying like it's that's it's not so just it's not your son you have to find the right person and the right fit so she has finally found someone and she enjoys going and she she talks you know when when she has to and if I, whatever they work it out um so i think that's like just key and um i also just want to say to you and i agree i hope like your son like will get like that hope because yeah. i know for layla there was just a sense of like um, she's also same. She's a senior this year. There were so many things she didn't want to miss, like 
breaks my heart. She still talks about it, all the things she already missed. Like she doesn't want to, she doesn't want it to end because she's like, I missed so much. Um, but they just get this, you know, just a hope that it can be different, um, and um, and they get the skills of how to do it. You know what what they need to do, um, and and that's huge. Any other questions? Yes. So the question is, we all get anxious over something or for some, many things. How do you know when you need help? I think for me, I have to just say it's all about functioning socially, emotionally, academically in the workplace. If your ability to function is truly, truly limited, and I'm sure the panelists can say, you do need help because you need to be able to function socially, emotionally, depression, anxiety, and academically and in the workplace, because we get a lot of adults too. Does anybody want to share on the panel about when you felt like you know you needed help? I would say, Glenda, what about for you guys, what made you kind of decide we got to get help? David. I was always excelling academically. That was never his issue. His issue was that he was desperate to be social and didn't really know how to jump in. It was like he was, you know, play, you know when you play double dutch rope and you just kind of hover on the outside before you jump the rope. He knew he wanted to be social, but didn't know how to jump into the rope. And we were trying to figure out what the anxiety was about. Um, and fortunately, we're able to research enough to find you. It was very specific. We. We weren't sure exactly what the anxiety was, but when we found you and saw that it was selective mutism, we said, oh, oh, oh wow, this could be it. We, we sort of thought initially that he was shy, that he may be introverted, like maybe an extreme case of introversion. But when we found the specific key to selective mutism, all the pieces seemed to come together. And so fortunately, we were able to talk to you about it. Any other questions? So I think the general question um, is, what role did your teachers play? What can your teachers do to help you or helped you become a, more of a confident social communicator in school? And when you were verbal, what else could they do to help you? And we're going to be talking a lot of, during our school section on how to help them become more initiative, elaborative, and expressive, and things like that. Um, but from your standpoint on the panel, what were some of the things your teachers did to really help you make this journey successful? Nicholas, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, so all throughout my school life, all my teachers have been very supportive and accommodating for me, um, especially when I was younger and I would kind of step back from a lot of those interactions in classrooms. Um, my teachers would always allow me to kind of have a buddy with me where maybe it was someone who I was comfortable talking to or someone who I was just, who I trusted more than someone else maybe. And they would allow me to stay around that buddy a lot through my classes throughout the school day. Um, that kind of reduced my anxiety in the classroom and at school. 
And then as I've grown older, my teachers have allowed me to communicate in nonverbal ways when I'm not comfortable expressing myself verbally. So they've allowed me to have a whiteboard or type out things on my phone and show to people instead of like putting all that pressure on me to talk in class. So I'm very grateful that my teachers, um, everyone at school has been accepting of who I am and allowed me to communicate in my own way. But at the same time, that is kind of another motivating factor for me to overcome and continue to push to make more progress and overcoming my selective mutism because it makes me want to be able to participate like everyone else is and talk to all my classmates, all my teachers. Um, for me, it definitely started with my parents facilitating things outside of the classroom. Um, so I had one best friend who I became very verbal with and she, my parents made sure she was in my class for the following like three years. Um, and I was able to then end up speaking to her in the classroom. I didn't do that at first. And then um, through smaller groups. So for me, it helped being with just like a small group of quieter girls, um, but still in that classroom setting. And I'm sure my parents and Dr. E probably did a lot of that behind the scenes. Um, but it was definitely really important to for my parents to communicate with the teachers because I know that like before they did, I did have teachers who would make me like stand up in front of the class and tell me I could not sit down until I said something. Um, so that it was really, really helpful for me after. Um, and I didn't even know that my parents communicated, but there was a time where that like stopped that method. Um, <laughs> so that really helped for me. And I also, I don't really remember this, but my parents and past teachers have told me that I used to raise my hand in class. Um, and my teachers kind of learned to not ignore me, so she would call on me. I would never answer, but then she would just kind of quickly move on, like, okay, maybe someone else can try to answer. Um, so I think definitely that communication was really, really pivotal uh, for my progress. I think it's really important to know that teachers need training, not because they don't know what SM is, but that every single person is different and factors into why somebody's selectively mute and also where they are on the bridge. And that changes. So where your child is now on the bridge is gonna be different the next time. And that's why there's people here that have gone to a couple camps because they're in a whole different place maybe. And so they're working on those. And that's what happens with trainings. Like we do school trainings and this is where they're at and we'll give them bullet points to work on. For kids that are verbal, you're correct. It's not just about answering, how are you good? What's going on? Nothing. It's how to help them become more initiative, more elaborative, more expressive, but it all starts with comfort and connection with peers. So the buddy process, especially as kids get older, is harder because they switch classes and things like that. But the buddy process that you reinforce at home through um, play dates or get togethers and then knowing what strategies to use to bridge your child up is really important. So it does start, as they said, with with the parents, but also teaching them, like we do a lot of interviews and scripting, like you saw the little girl yesterday on the RSA video, she was literally saying, do you like dogs? Like teaching them, a lot of children do really well when they're writing it out and reading it, so polls and surveys and 
um, you know, interviews and assignments and helping them learn these skills, but I can't emphasize enough the importance of comfort and connection with peers because that's going to allow them to become more expressive and elaborative. So if that's not being done and they're buddied up with different kids and not connecting with enough kids and they're not expanding, bringing buddies in, rotating buddies out and to the point where they can talk, then they're gonna stay quiet because they don't have the comfort and verbal experience with enough kids in the classroom. Did you guys wanna add anything? I think it's like super important to like really tell your kids' teachers exactly what they should be doing, but in like a nice way. It's not like, <laughs> you should make my kid do this, thanks, because that's not gonna work. But I think really connecting to your teachers is like super important. I have started emailing my teachers. Of course, if you're like a five-year-old, you can't really do that. But I've emailed my teachers at least every like beginning of the year just saying, hey, I need help with this. Here are my goals. If you can help me with those, that would be excellent. I know for like the high schoolers, well, when I was here, I know like thinking like, I think that's obviously like a little easier when you're in elementary school and there's one teacher or something. If my kid's in high school, this, you know, she has eight teachers, this year's six teachers. Um, and so I think it's a little bit harder to do. And then I think you're like more reluctant to do it because you're like, again, I, like my, for me, it's like that judgment of like, you shouldn't be doing these things for your high school or they should be doing them themselves. So <clears throat> I let that go. Um, Layla does do a really good job of emailing with her teachers. For the beginning of every year, I email all her teachers to let them know, like, th this is my daughter Layla. I always start with, like, the great things about her. And so, again, I want to reiterate what Dr. E says, like, folk, like, I know your kids are fantastic. I know, I mean, I know it. I know there's amazing things about them. I know they're listeners. I know they're watchers. I know they're super, like, great friends, super empathetic. Like, I know it. <laughs> and um, those are amazing things. Um, and then I just kind of go over really quickly, like, some of the basics. And um, and then, you know, we have a, my kids go to private school, so it's, it, it is also easier. Um, and sometimes not easier. But they have a 504 or a, a um, IEP. IEP or things like that if you need to like do that but I always just want to encourage parents like you're not a pain like it's you're not just you're not like your kid deserves it just like every other kid does and I agree with Sophie like I'm super super nice about it I often email them to tell them like oh my gosh Layla came home and talked about this or this was so great and so they feel good about what they're doing also. Um, and Jen did just do like a, um, a training with Layla's teachers again this year. So again, that's possible in high school. I know you think like, I can't ask them to do that, but like I do and they really appreciate it. And not only for Layla, but it is, every time they're like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful for every kid that I have that's maybe a reluctant talker or a little anxious and things like that. Cause we are all a little anxious. Um, so I think just, especially for the older kids, but for everybody, just don't be afraid to, to do it. You're not being a, a pain. It's, you know, again, your kids are great. Like I say to Layla, if the worst thing about her is she doesn't talk in your class, are you kidding? Like, really? Like... <laughs> and with younger kids, you know, art teachers, music teachers, librarians, when we do trainings, we recommend as many staff members as possible to be there and give in the bullet points and reports of what to do and honestly what not to do. And I think one of the biggest things we see is teachers not asking enough questions and understanding where they are on the bridge to facilitate. So 
If they have a buddy, it's the, you know, using verbal intermediaries, sounds to words, scripting, write and read, write and show, whatever they are, and understand how to kind of bridge them up and bridge them down. Doctor, can I just give a couple examples for the high schoolers too, things that Layla does? Like, so like oral presentations, like she doesn't give an oral presentation yet, but like there's a million ways that they can do it. So she does it, Layla's comfortable after school just giving the presentation to the teacher. But nowadays there's like a million things they can do, record it, record their voice, whatever they're comfortable with. So there's a million different options. And even like one of Layla's teachers, um, would email her to say, I'm gonna ask you this question on Wednesday in class, because Layla is very comfortable in small groups. Now, um, she will, like, comfortable talking with, like, a couple close people. Again, in high school, like, in the younger kids, they have a buddy. Um, in high school, whenever we get her schedule, we go through her classes, who's in her class. These are the three people she knows well and is comfortable with. They'll sit her next to that those people. If there's a, a, like a group project, she'll pair them with at least one of those people. Um, but they would email her and say, I'm going to ask you this question on this day. And so she could be prepared and she would answer the question. You know? And so there are just a lot of things. And the teachers just don't know. But they're more than happy to do it when you, when you talk to them about it. They're excited. Yes. One of the comments she made um, was that um, prior to her son having selected mutism, and she's a teacher, in, and in the high school they had never even heard of really what to do you know, with selected mutism, and they have two students. So educating teachers we know is such a critical component, um, and that's why trainings are important, but for you guys to share resources, one thing you're gonna get after camp is Lisa Marie is gonna be sending you a lot of resources, share them with your school, give them information. And a, a really great resource is about my child you'll get to where you fill in, here's about my child, you know, the gifts they have, the things that they, they can offer the world, but here's ways to help, like to engage with them, to help them communicate instead of running up and trying to force them. So using the about my child, and for a lot of the teens, the about me, you know, I think what you're hearing from Nicholas, and I know David's not here, he's off studying, and another country and Alex and Sophie is their proactiveness in this and I think one of the arts of therapy is really helping individuals having the kids as even very young children start to understand this but also be part of this journey so often you know therapists don't talk to the kids about this parents don't talk a lot about it with fear of not knowing what to say but it is about talking about it and every step of the way tweaking it and making progress and knowing when to bridge up when to bridge down and really talking about the journey so that they're an act look if you're learning how to do multiplication and you're learning how to read you know it's not just you all of a sudden you're reading a whole novel it steps along the way and teachers and parents and everyone supporting it's really no different with this yes one of the questions is that um, his daughter struggles in class sometimes doing work and asking for help and um, even at home sometimes doing the homework is a struggle is there anything that you guys did to help you um, be able to, to finish your work or do your work at school? Did you ever have any difficulty with that? And what were some of the resources you used to help yourself? I don't think I've had much difficulty with the understanding, like, topics. I'm usually pretty good at, like, kind of teaching myself. But I find it really hard to, like, ask my teachers if I do struggle. So I usually, in the past, I would ask my friends to ask my teachers any questions. So 
that might be a good idea to try. I think your teachers need an education and maybe figuring out what is it about the schoolwork that's hard. Is it the anxiety? Is it the academics? And the teachers being educated and then working with her on. Good, good, good. I'm glad you're teaching. Good. Nicholas, is there anything you wanted to share with that? So I think my mom can probably attest to this more than I can, but having kind of a 504 plan or something that lets the teachers know a little bit more about me is something that was pretty beneficial in educating them so that they could be more prepared in my classrooms. You know, one of the things that he did early on, um, he, his teachers let him solve, he's really good at math. He's like a math wizard. I don't understand it, but he, um, he really would, they would, they saw that in him and they would allow him to come to the whiteboard at the front of the class and solve a problem, um, instead of having to verbally answer, he would write it down on the whiteboard. And that gave him confidence um, to, to, to be able to do that. I, I'm glad that the teachers realized that early on. Um, and also as a parent, I wanna say, it's very important to educate these teachers. He's had this for 15 years and going into kindergarten with a diagnosis, those teachers had no clue. I actually pulled a lot of resources off of the internet and took them in um, and met with the, the teachers before school even started and tried to help educate them just so he, you know, he wasn't going in there into a crazy circus-like situation. So um, yeah, it's very important to educate the teachers. Yeah, so what this mom said is that accommodations, and in her daughter's case, it was extra time to finish schoolwork, um, and even with the PSATs. I mean, we also have time where during, like, extra time of resource rooms and things like that, um, and sometimes adapting a schedule depending on, you know, the reasons and things like that. You have a question, yes. Um, what he was sharing was that, um, Jennifer did a school training, and it seemed like it went well on the surface. It was, seemed to be exactly what this child needed, but the school psychologist has um, a bit of a chip on her shoulder and is a bit defensive, to say the least, and they're feeling the pushback. Here's what I would say, and I know Jennifer would share this with you. You need benchmarks. If your child is not making steady progress, I usually say if your child's not making progress in 10 days, like 10 school days, there's just no progress, that's your kind of proof that whatever you're not doing is a, a, an issue for us. And it might be that you need an advocate of some sort to help you because there are times that schools will have school psychologists or counselors and in, in, you know they might have had a totally different child with SM that different strategies worked and they in their mind feel like this is what is needed. Or they see SM as a diagnosis that it's one size fits all and we know that that's not. So I think it's going to take, hopefully, you being persistent and having the proof over time. And we have something called the SM School Evaluation Form. That's a form I developed years ago to be able to assess a child's academics in school, to be able to assess their starting, completing tasks on time, the academic piece, but also how are they communicating with peers, with teachers, small groups, and large groups, and I use that. So when families are doing follow-ups with me, I am evaluating that and comparing it to the time before. And if I see progress is not being made and I know that I'm giving them information, that's on them. 
they're not doing it because I know it's going to work. So then you find out, no, they're not doing the pullouts, they're not asking questions in the right way, and that's where you have to get a little bit stricter with it, but also the possibility of an outside advocate to be on your side with that. I don't want to get into the whole lawyer thing because in my entire career I can count on my hands the times it happened and it was usually when it was already occurring before I even met them because the hope is as they start to see progress, they start to get even more motivated and they start to come on board more. That's the hope and that's happened where we've had very, very resistant schools, right Jen? And as soon as they start to see the progress, they start to let go of their control. So hopefully that'll be the case. Any other questions? Yes. All right, there's a lot of questions there. So I'm going to, no, 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 that's fine, but I'm trying to paraphrase it. So here's the question I'm going to start with. Did you guys, the girls, the young ladies, and Nicholas, um, and maybe David, because I know that he might have something to say to this, but how did, did you have any sort of difficulty with peers in terms of peer pressure, any bullying, anything where you felt, you know, really upset or angry and people weren't treating you right around your selective mutism? And what did you do? What, how was that handled? I go to a relatively small school, so I haven't really dealt with much bullying or teasing or mistreatment. So I can't really say much about that. Nicholas, did you experience anything? Yeah, so kind of here and there throughout my life, I've kind of experienced situations where some people may be like, oh, why doesn't he talk? Why don't you just talk to us? Or they keep asking me questions of like, when I'm gonna talk to them and things like that. Uh, I think over time I've learned to kind of let those things go because they used to get to me and really kind of tear me down in a way, if that makes sense. But I've kind of learned to push those things aside and kind of use them as another driving force. Um, Cause like it motivates me even more to want to talk to those people. Um, kind of taking that and flipping it on its head um, instead of having that be another thing that kind of adds a weight to my shoulders. It's kind of something that pushes me even more. And with your diagnosis of selective mutism for anybody, and moms can certainly add here, did you want, if it's about your child, it, did you want the school to know? Did you want your peers to know? How did you feel regarding the other kids being aware of this diagnosis or what you were doing? I actually try and tell like anyone who I'm really going to hang out with and try and talk to about my SM, I actually have tried to write stuff on my phone just informing them about my SM because I find it really helpful when people know what to do and what not to do around me. Um, I might be a little different because I actually did not know I had a diagnosis at the time. I just thought that I was different. I also thought I was the only person in the world who was like this, who didn't talk. Um, and I thought that I would be that way for the rest of my life. So I just thought that I was gonna go through life not speaking. Um, so I think for me, it would have been cool to, I mean, have an experience like this. I, that's like another thing I love about Communicamp. Um, besides like all of the things you learn is just that like, 
your kids get to be in a classroom with a bunch of people who have the same diagnosis as them and who they all kind of get to form a united group. Like I had no idea that there were other people like me in the world, um, which is so cool to see. Like there's actually a huge community. Um, even for younger kids though, if they do know that they have a diagnosis, I think for some of them it's a cool opportunity to educate younger kids who probably have no idea that anything like this exists. Nicholas, did you have anything, that, uh, thoughts on others knowing about this? It's definitely important to educate as many people as possible, especially friends, family, anyone who you're close to, um, but also definitely like schools and teachers, um, kind of letting people know what you're going through and how they can be accommodating, how they can help um, is really important, especially for the person who has SM. It kind of reduces their anxiety. Like for me, when people knew kind of how to approach me, how to ask me questions, um, how to be accommodating towards me, that helped me to open up more to them instead of just wanting to avoid the situation. Mm -hmm. It sounds like for some of you, like Sophie and Nicholas, it's almost a relief for others to know. But having treated so many kids and teens, there are a lot that don't want them to know. And so I have to respect that. So if we're educating the school, it's a way that they can change just the way they ask questions and who they pair them up with. But I have to be really conscious of the goals I'm giving these kids. And I do explain to them as they're learning about SM and they're learning about where they are on the bridge and they're rating their feelings, that in order to really truly be able to find your voice and to be able to, like Nicholas was saying, to be able to do things in life that you want to do, and I'll give them examples based on their interests of getting hockey tickets at the stadium and your dad or your mom's in the car and how would you get those tickets and you really want to go to the, so you give them examples to help give them reasons why they might want to find their voice one day to connect with them. Um, but we'll come up with ways to practice skills. Like a really good way is, remember I said, even when kids are verbal, they're not necessarily initiative, elaborative, and expressive. In fact, they're not, many of them. The older they are, the more they're not. I always give the example, how are you good? Like they can talk, and they do. And a lot of them talk, but they're not that. They're not able to, and conversation starters. So that is a lot more skill-based than you realize, really learning the um, how to have a conversation and what questions others can ask off those questions. So doing assignments is what we often call it, just like if you're doing math or you're doing reading or science, you're doing homework. These are things to help you practice so that when these things are needed and you're able to be in real world, you are able to learn how to have a conversation and everything you do, just even in stores and restaurants, prepares you for out and about. But assignments rather than interview questions or games, you change it to assignments and goals to work on. I have an assignment, would you help me? And it could be about biography or, or about trivia questions. That This is an assignment I need to do. These other people don't need to know that it's an assignment by me. Or it's an, it's could be an assignment from school, but they're practicing these interview questions of asking questions and then even handling topic questions, ask me about questions. So the reason I'm bringing that up is it's not so simple, get comfortable and they talk, but it's about working with each person and knowing what they are comfortable with in terms of their goals. 
and how can teachers facilitate it in a way and parents that it's not making the child feel uncomfortable because involving them, I mean, I know everyone here, I know Layla, I, I know from what Nicholas did here and Jared, I had to really know what they wanted to do, what their goals were, and that's the first thing we do with teens is what are your goals? Nothing, I have no goals. Well, that's a starting point that's a little further away to get them to the starting gate that has to be worked on. Um, but Nicholas truly wanted to do it, Sophie really wanted to do it, Jared wanted to do it, but some took a while. Sophie, even in the beginning, you were a little bit more resistant. So it's about getting the child to believe in this and the hope as well. Um, any other questions for the panel? Yes? So this mom said that her daughter gets very depressed about this and because she can't, you know, use her words and talk effectively. Did any of your children yeah. struggle or any of the kids yeah. struggle? Yeah. yeah. Layla's very depressed about it. So yeah, she definitely struggles with a lot of depression, I would say. Um, so I think that's the thing that's harder, you know, when they get older, right? Like that gets really, really hard. And she still struggles, you know, with the question about do you want people to know? She doesn't, I mean, her obviously best friend knows, but she doesn't really want the kids at school to know and things like that. Um, so um, she definitely struggles with a lot of depression. And um, I mean, she does, she's in therapy, I think that's important, and she is on medication. I know, again, that is very specific, and you have to really work through that, but that has definitely helped her. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's very hard when they're older, and they, there are so many other things involved in it. She wishes she could do so many things. Nicholas, did you have any issues at all, you think, with any sort of depression? or? I don't really think that I personally experience going through those stages of depression. Um, I think anxiety and depression kind of run on a similar wavelength, which is why they're so often grouped together. Um, and I've definitely, I've witnessed some people go through stages like that um, with similar struggles. But for me, the anxiety was always there, but I never really experienced any depression. Glenda, anything with David? I don't believe that David's ever depressed. I believe he was really frustrated. Um, and I, my recollection for him receiving the most, if you will, compassion and empathy was really coming from his circus activities. His coaches just really worked with him and loved him because he was such um, he was so relentless and disciplined in what it was that he wanted to accomplish. And he found those peers to be the most important peers for him. And he was able to befriend a couple of them. Um, and it was, it was wonderful to watch. But overall, the mentors that he had at Circus, the coaches that he had at Circus, they just loved him up and helped him to become all that he could be with the skills that he was developing. Um, so I'm, I think that frustration more than, than um, frustration and anxiety more than depression. Thank you. So um, I have a question um, for the panel. What is your advice to the children and teens with SM? If you had a talk to, and I know we're going to have you guys talk to the kids here, but just to the audience, what is your advice to children and teens with selective mutism? I think 
the biggest thing that I could possibly say is that you're not alone, that there are so many people who will be happy to support you, who will be happy to be behind you in this journey. Um, I think one of the biggest realizations that I had was that I'm not the only one struggling with this. Like there are so many other people who are going through the same thing. Um, it's just something that sounds so simple, but it's actually, you don't really think about it until you kind of take a step back and kind of reflect upon, um, oh wow, there really are this many other people who have the same thing that I have. It may not be the exact same thing, but it's, it's powerful to know that you're not alone in this struggle. And also knowing that with repeated exposures, with repeated practice, it does get easier. And while you may not see it at first, it will definitely continue to show up as you continue to push yourself and kind of expand to your comfort zone. Um, yeah, definitely, you're not alone. Um, this won't be your life forever. Um, and even though selective mutism is something um, that can be kind of more obvious, you know, it's harder to hide because the symptoms a lot of the times show on the outside. Um, but everybody does have their own struggles, and just because yours might be more obvious to the people in your class, the people around you, um, doesn't mean that everybody else in your life is also working on something that is really, really hard for them. So something that you are really good at is a struggle for something else. So just because other people are really good at speaking and it's not hard for a lot of other people doesn't mean that they also have their own very tough struggles that they are going through. I would say that um, progress is nowhere close to being linear. Some days will be really off and really hard and you can't, you feel like you can't do very much, but other days will be really good and you'll be able to like make friends and speak to your teachers and really ask questions and communicate and flourish, I guess. They said it perfectly. I mean, I think, you know, the idea, um, yeah, that it's just, it, it is work, so it's not easy. I think sometimes, like, I feel like when I've been here, too, I'm like, everything is great. You know, the teachers were all great. It's great. It's really, there are a lot of really, really, really hard days. Um, and it for sure is like two steps forward. You think I'm like, oh, we're on a great path. And then like, oh, it gets really, really bad. So, but uh, yeah, for me, again, it's just always been about the hope that you will not be like this. It won't, it does get better and you will have a great life. You will drive, you will get a job, you will go to college, you will have friends and um, you just gotta do the work. Thank you. Glenda, do you have any advice to children and teens with SM? I would say that the huge piece is being able to move through shame and worthiness or feelings of unworthiness. If kids can move through not feeling ashamed of what's going on for them or not feeling worthy of not belonging, all of those kinds of things, that big, big um, combination of things that block 
self-compassion because at the end of the day, I think that what parents and children need is compassion around this. And if teens can have, if children can develop self-compassion, knowing to Nicholas's brilliant point that it's more universal than most people think. So moving, moving into self-compassion, I think is very important for the family, for the parents, for the child. I, I think just be um, that for the parents, especially just be their advocate. Um, you know, the advice to the parents would be be your child's advocate. You, especially when they're little, they just really need some guidance and let them be a normal kid. We let Nicholas play baseball. He is um, he he's been playing baseball since he was four. We let him be normal. We didn't hold him back, and he 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 you know he's turning out great. <laughs> So I say just let your kids, um, you know, be their advocate and really let them try to be as normal as possible. So I think you answered what is your advice to parents. Um, I think it would be neat to get, Nicholas, your perspective, Alex, and Sophie, your perspective. What is your message to parents here <laughs> regarding their child or teen with selective mutism? I think what I would say is that Kind of let your parents parent you and try not to kind of take things into your own control. Um, that may kind of sound a little backwards, knowing that if you have selective mutism, you're the one who knows yourself best. But at the same time, your parents are trying to help you. So listen to what they are saying. And for parents, also listen to what your children are saying because they do know themselves. Um, so I think parents should know that their kids will, who have selective mutism know kind of their own condition better than the parent may. So kind of take into account what your kid, what your child is saying. Um, and don't just try to kind of step over what they are experiencing, if that makes sense. Are you looking for a job, Nicholas? <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, you're articulating so many great concepts, and I think it goes back to the look, listen, and learn. You're basically saying to parents, look at your kids, listen to them, and learn from them that they know they're going through something. And even though we as parents think we know the journey or what it should be, what are they telling us? What's important to them? Um, and even young children. So thank you. You really articulated that truly beautifully. Thank you so much. Um, Alex, what is your advice to parents? Um, yeah, look, listen, and learn, definitely. Um, I love be their advocate, but also just be their parent and love them and be there for them and um, just love them for who they are because they're going to, you know, they're going to feel that everybody in their life is focusing on what they need to change about themselves. Um, but all your kids, like, there's, there's so many awesome things about them besides just having trouble speaking. Um, so to really focus on how great they are and how much love they deserve just as they are, too, is going to be so important. Sophie, the question is, what is your advice to parents? Maybe, like, be your child's biggest, like, cheerleader. Celebrate 
all of their successes, even the smallest ones? Yeah, you guys are awesome. Um, so this has been just an amazing experience, and I want to turn this around because I'm realizing Glenda, Elizabeth, and Nicholas can't really see the audience and the panelists, so they've only been looking at me the whole time. <laughs> but just <laughs> so let me see if I can turn this around and you can see the audience. <laughs> see everyone, everybody wave on uh, that panel over there. See, so Glenda. So I, I personally want to, you know, thank the panelists. I mean, it's not easy to get up here and talk, but they want to offer hope and support and answer your questions. So I am like so grateful for you to share your stories with everyone, and thank you so so much. And I think we have to. All right. This concludes the live panel recording. Please visit communicamp.org to learn more about this intensive group treatment and parent education and support program for children ages 3 to 17, including upcoming dates, how to sign up, FAQs, and more. Thanks for listening.